I'm Tavis Smythe. This is KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580-1800-920-1580. In this hour, Ukraine is trending in the news once again, but this time for all the wrong reasons, not to mention that the specter of nuclear weapon use has been broached. We will speak right now with U.S. foreign policy expert Phyllis Bennis about this interminable war uh, and... Uh, what can you say? Uh, a war that I thought uh, would have been over long ago continues to just go on and on and on, sort of like that Energizer Bunny. Uh, and um, I'm not sure I understand it, but it's always good to have Phyllis Bennis on to explain these things to us. She is an author, activist, and director of the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. And as I said a moment ago, always delighted to be in conversation with her. She takes these difficult concepts and makes it understandable for everyday people like me and you. Phyllis Bennis, how are you today? Happy New Year. My first time talking to you this year. Happy New Year to you, Tavis. Great to be with you today. Good to have you on. Thank you again for your time. A lot to unpack here in this hour. Um, I said a moment ago that uh, I thought that this, you know, I, I don't know why I thought this. Uh, perhaps I thought it because it was Russia against Ukraine, David versus Goliath. Maybe that's why I thought this thing would long ago have been over. Uh, but clearly I was wrong. Um, what do you make of uh, what I thought was going to be the case in this situation? Well, I think most of us hoped that it wouldn't ever get this far, that it, that the threats would not lead to an actual war. The war has gone on almost a year. It'll be a year on, in just a few weeks. Uh, and we've seen, on the one hand, the response by Ukraine has defied what everyone expected. The Ukrainian military was not huge relative to the Russian military, but they have fought quite brilliantly. There's a massive mobilization of the population in self-defense. At the same time, the Russian military actions uh, have been far beyond the ability to, uh, to actually challenge control of the whole country of Ukraine. Russia has seized some additional territory. Uh, but they have carried out massive destruction of cities, of towns, villages across the country. Uh, so it's been a, a bitter, bitter war, uh, one that was certainly not unprovoked. We should be clear about that. The mm -hmm. U.S. and NATO provocations against uh, Russia have been going on for, for decades now. But it's also true that none of those provocations made this war by Russia legal or legitimate or moral. This has been a terrible, illegal, immoral war. Uh, and what we need is diplomacy and a ceasefire and negotiations to end this war. Yeah. The claims that if we just give more, more military equipment, somehow the war will end because Russia will be defeated is simply not grounded in reality. Yep. You said a few things I want to give you a chance to unpack right quick. Let me start with the latter point you just made. Um, every time I look up, it seems that Joe Biden is offering billions of dollars more in aid to Ukraine. He has been steadfast that there will not be U.S. boots on the ground. But again, every time you look up, there, there, there are more billions that we discover for this war in Ukraine uh, to assist and aid and abet. Uh, this this sovereign nation. We can't find money for the other things that matter in this country, but we can mint money, as it were, when it comes to the war in Ukraine. I digress on that particular point, but I want to come to the issue that you just raised. We keep giving more money. We keep giving more aid in the billions of dollars to Ukraine. 
and Ukraine doesn't be able to, can't seem, to my mind at least, to turn the corner. The war hasn't come to an end. Russia has not surrendered, and maybe that's too Pollyannish, but but there's something, there's got to be some connect uh, between the money that we're giving and the fact that this war doesn't seem to abate. Um, how do I how do I read that? That we keep giving money, but it doesn't seem to be making a difference, as right. it were. Well, I think that it's not irrelevant, Tavis, what you started with, which is the question of the money, the billions of dollars, the tens of billions of dollars. It's now up over $65 billion that the U.S. has given to Ukraine in less than a year, more than any other country in history. Uh, and not all of that is for the military, but the bulk of it has been. Mm-hmm. That there's no money for health care. There's no money for jobs. There's no money for education. There's no money for all the things that we so desperately need in this country. And we have 140 million poor and low wealth people in this country that are paying the price. Mm-hmm. So those things are not irrelevant to the war in Ukraine. I think that we have to look beyond even just the money to the very dangerous, provocative moves that the U.S. is doing, including right now, announcing that they are going to send uh, Abrams tanks, 30 of them, the biggest, most powerful U.S. tanks in the U.S. arsenal, to Ukraine. The U.S. has said directly, it's quoted in the New York Times this morning, that they're not going to get there for years, and they're not going to be trained for months more. So this isn't even really about changing the military dynamics on the ground. This was a political move by the Biden administration to convince Germany to send German tanks to Ukraine, mm. right? So the U.S. claim is a, it's a political move. They're not even making an actual military difference in a war. If it's going to be years before these tanks arrive... Does that mean the U.S. thinks that the war is going to go on for years and we're just going to continue to send billions of dollars and all the weapons in our arsenal? Are they going to ask next for warplanes? When is this going to end and how is this going to end? There's not going to be a World War II style full surrender. You know, the Japanese emperor surrendering on the ship. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen. Russia is not going to surrender like that. I don't think Russia can <clears throat> conquer more territory in Ukraine, and I'm glad of that. Ukraine is a sovereign country. It has its right to its own territory. And it's also true that Russia does have the capacity to keep destroying Ukrainian territory, Ukrainian cities. So if we're serious about wanting to end this war, I think we have to be talking about diplomacy, about a ceasefire about negotiations. Calling for a ceasefire doesn't mean that we think both sides are equally culpable. Mm -hmm. You know, the the Russians were responsible for launching this war on the ground, despite the years of of U.S. and NATO uh, provocations. They, They made a choice of how to respond to those provocations, and they chose an illegal war. But we're in that war now, and the the goal, I think, given the thousands of people who are being killed, thousands of of Ukrainian civilians, elders, babies, children, and the the tens of thousands of both Ukrainian and Russian recruits and soldiers. You know, the goal needs to be to end this war. So the question is, how do we do that? Six months ago, the, the prime minister of Germany said that sending German tanks 
would be a major escalation. It would cross a red line. And now, under U.S. pressure, the Germans are agreeing to send their Leopard 2 tanks directly to Ukraine. And the U.S. is, is claiming that they will provide the political cover to Germany, uh, despite the disagreement by the Pentagon itself, who said, this is not a good idea. Yeah. I'm they're, sending, they're saying they're sending tanks, and the Germans are going to send tanks in cross that red line. Then what happens? That's where we get to the question of the threat of nuclear escalation. There's a lot to talk about in this hour, including the threat of nuclear uh, war. Number one, and number two, the question she asked a moment ago, not at all rhetorically, how do we end this uh, interminable war? Um, we'll get to that in a great deal more as we move through this hour with Phyllis Bennis. You heard her say a moment ago that uh, the numbers uh, now sits at about $65 billion. Um, And so these are never sexy subjects, but I, I raise this because we need to come back to it certainly time and time again uh, as long as this war is going on and as long as your tax dollar input keeps going up. The number now, again, $65 billion of your money. Uh, we can't find money for the things that matter to communities like ours. $65 billion of your money has now been pledged and or spent uh, uh, on this war in Ukraine, uh, and it doesn't seem to abate. Uh, and so, again, there's a great deal to talk about. Uh, we'll talk in a moment here about what we've been talking about on this program the last couple of weeks, given that we just celebrated the King holiday, his triple threat that he laid out uh, facing this democracy, racism, poverty, and militarism. You heard Phyllis Bennis moments ago make the link between poverty and militarism. So much more to talk about as we move through this hour with Phyllis Bennis on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. Right now. It does indeed with Phyllis Bennis, who is uh, an author, activist, and director of the New Internationalism Project Act. The Institute for Policy Studies, continuing our conversation now about this war in Ukraine that, again, seems to uh, have no end. Even after we have been, um, uh, we've contributed, uh, donated $65 billion of U.S. money and counting uh, to this war in Ukraine, they can't seem to win it, uh, whatever winning it means. We'll talk to Phyllis about that in a moment ago. What does winning mean? Um, she said earlier that, you know, Russia's not going to just stand up. You, you, Putin's not going to stand up and say, we lost, we surrender and wave a white flag. It ain't going to happen like that. Um, I don't know if uh, Gil Scott Heron was right that the revolution will not be televised, but that is not how Russia is going to surrender uh, if they ever surrender in this war. So there's a great deal to talk about. Uh, given that our uh, contribution of U.S. tax dollars continues to rise, again, even as the war uh, does not abate uh, in Ukraine. Uh, before I get to some of these other issues that I want to interrogate, we've already raised and some others that are not on the docket as yet, Phyllis, I want to go back before I get too far away from it, from this comment you made that I want to make sure that the audience understands, because you said two things, and I don't find these things incongruent. I just want to give you a chance to square them for the audience. You said uh, more than once in this conversation that this war was not unprovoked. On the other hand, you said, but Russia is engaging in an illegal and an immoral war. Those two things, again, for me, are not incongruent, but I want to give you a chance to explain what you mean by the fact that the war was not unprovoked, and yet how you still see it as an illegal and immoral invasion of a sovereign nation. Sure. Thanks for asking me to do that, Tavis. It is a key question because it does sound confusing in some ways. We often hear that this war was unprovoked, illegal, etc. And the problem is there were provocations that began when the Soviet Union collapsed. You know, many of us believe that when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, 
that should have also been the end of the NATO anti-Soviet military alliance. That's what NATO was designed to do, was to mobilize the U.S., Canada, and Europe against the Soviet Union and its, its allies uh, in Eastern Europe. And when that no longer existed, the raison d'etre of NATO disappeared, and it should have dissolved. It should have declared victory and said, did the job, we're, we're done here. Instead, NATO was given a bunch of new uh, assignments. It played a role in Afghanistan. It took the lead in the war in Libya uh, and other places outside of Europe, outside of what it was originally designed to do. And more crucially, during that period, there was a promise made by U.S. officials to the Russians that if they agreed to allow German reunification between West and East Germany, that they would not move the border of NATO any closer to Russia than it was at that time. And immediately that, uh, uh, that promise was broken over the years. So NATO expansion has been the name of the game. And there's 20 or so new countries now part of NATO in recent years. So NATO has expanded right up to the borders of Russia. That itself is a provocation. But mm. beyond that, the U.S. has stationed nuclear weapons in five different European countries. And who's the target of those, of those nuclear weapons? It's mainly Russia. So that's another kind of provocation. Uh, you know, so there's been a series of provocations, some of which were diplomatic action. And these were longstanding problems. Russia's response to those provocations at times included diplomacy. But in this case, they said, okay, that's it. We're going to war and invaded Ukraine uh, after seizing territory in Ukraine back in 2008. The Crimea, parts of eastern Ukraine were already in Russian hands. But this was a full-scale invasion and occupation of the country. And the fact that the U.S. and NATO had provoked Russia in these ways doesn't make it okay to respond with a full-scale war. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't. So I think that's where we start. There's, in a sense, one way to look at it. It's almost have as if we had two wars going on. There's a global war, which the U.S. and NATO were responsible for, for this kind of global provocation against Russia, uh, a lot of which was, dipl was diplomatic, some were military moves, but there was never a move against the Russian territory. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there's a war on the ground in which Russia clearly was the, uh, the, the instigator in February of last year, rolling tanks across the border to take over territory in, uh, in Ukraine. So that's what I mean when I say that it was both provoked and illegal. So the goal needs to be to stop it. The goal needs to be to stop the war. Ukraine has the right as a sovereign country to control of its own territory. And Russia doesn't have the right to seize territory. And the U.S. doesn't have the right to, to perpetuate this war even further than it's been going by refusing, for example, to say, we call for negotiations. That doesn't mean the U.S. should have the right to tell the Ukrainians how to negotiate, what they should concede, what they should not concede. 
That's up to Ukraine. They're a sovereign country. But as long as the U.S. says, we're going to give you everything you need to keep fighting and we're not going to call for diplomacy, we've got a problem on our hands. This could become a much bigger war than it is now. So you heard Phyllis a moment ago say that these tanks rolled into Ukraine, these Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine a year ago in February. So uh, literally a few days from now, we will be approaching the one-year anniversary of this uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and this war again that goes on uh, day by day, unabated, with more lives being lost on both sides of this battle. We are approaching the one-year anniversary of this invasion, uh, and we are putting a dollar figure on our investment at about $65 billion at the moment. That number continues to climb. That's where we are almost a year later. Uh, Speaking of that year, here's what I have not heard and have not seen, and I want to link these two things. Phyllis, I think you'll appreciate this, and I'll lay it out for you as I see it and get out of your way and let you respond to it. Um, But I invoked the name of Dr. King earlier. Um, This audience knows I say it all the time for my uh, for my for my money to my mind. Dr. King is the greatest American this country has ever produced. That's my own assessment. Um, And one of the things that King was talking a great deal about in the latter years of his life was what he called the triple threat facing our democracy, racism, poverty and militarism. You know, Phyllis, and most of this audience knows we talk about it all the time. The Dr. King went in on LBJ. MLK went in on LBJ when LBJ was advancing this war in Vietnam. And what King did remarkably and beautifully, as only King could do, was to link um, two of the, well, all three of those things are linked, racism, poverty, and militarism. Uh, But he said to LBJ that the bombs you're dropping in Hanoi are landing in the ghettos and barrios of American cities. You promised a war on poverty, but you're engaged on a war uh, in a war in Vietnam. And King did a, a spectacular job of, 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 uh, of, of morally linking poverty and militarism. You did that earlier in this conversation. Here's what I'm getting at. At the national level, I've heard no one uh, really challenge the president on the moral question of linking the moral issue of linking poverty and militarism. When you're spending $65 billion over there, this whole lot of stuff over here that's not getting done. And yet I hear no one. Everybody's like, yes, yes, yes. We're on the side of democracy. We're on the side of Ukraine. Russia is wrong. We hate Vladimir Putin. Okay, I'm like you in this regard, Phyllis. Those things can be true, but it can also be true. And. Exactly. It's not right. either or. It's both and. I understand that argument. Exactly. But what about the argument? Where, where are the people pushing the president, raising this issue, linking poverty at home and military excursion abroad? Well, you raise a critical question, Tavis, and I think there are people who are doing it. I think Reverend William Barber on Christmas Eve gave an extraordinary moral call in the form of a sermon. Uh, I'm I'm very proud to to work with Reverend Barber very often on the issue of militarism in the context of the new Poor People's Campaign. And his call was rooted in, it was that 108th anniversary of the uh, the Christmas Eve truce during World War One. that is this incredible story, it's a magical story, of something that happened in the trenches of Belgium, where German troops on the one side and French and British troops on the other side had been fighting each other for six months. It was wet, it was cold, they were desperate, and somehow, on Christmas Eve, they came out of their trenches, and they came into what was known as no man's land, and they greeted each other, they exchanged gifts, they, they sang Christmas carols together. They played soccer. Somebody had a f- soccer ball they found somewhere. 
And the fighting stopped for a day and then another day. And it didn't end the war, but it provided a model of how people could stop a war. And Reverend Barber took that story and brought it up to today about Ukraine and about other wars that are going on in Somalia and in Libya and in Afghanistan and in Iraq and in places around the world, because while the U.S. is now claiming that the new military focuses on our so-called near-peer competitors, meaning Russia and China, the wars of the so-called global war on terror are not over. They're still being fought, too, just not on the front pages. And I think what was so important about Reverend Barber's sermon that night, his moral call, and, and the notion of exactly what you're talking about from Dr. King, this intersection between racism, poverty, and militarism, and climate. If Dr. King were alive today, mm, sure, he sure, would put sure. climate right in there. Yep. With those three, it would be quadruplets instead mm -hmm. of triplets. Mm -hmm. It's the linkage between those concepts, between those evil realities that make or struggle for this kind of pressure to end this war so crucial. So part of it is about the money, the $65 billion we've already spent, $50 billion is being debated in Congress as we speak for additional money for Ukraine, both military and other forces, and the fact that we are talking about a military budget this year of $858 billion, almost a trillion dollars. That's 53%, more than half of the entire federal budget that Congress gets to determine. So the question of what Dr. King posed to Lyndon Johnson when he said, we can't make real your claim to support a war on poverty as long as you're waging war in Vietnam, in his Riverside Church speech mm -hmm. of 1967, which you made that wonderful film about years ago, Tavis, on the 50th anniversary then, that day, this is still the notion of the immorality of war is linked to the immorality of poverty, which is linked to the immorality of racism. Let me let me cut in right quick there, uh, get some news, traffic, and sports out of the way. Um, she's on a roll, and I don't want to stop her, but I have to for news, traffic, and sports. We'll continue with Phyllis Bennis in a moment on KBLA Talk 1580. Less BS per broadcast. Fewer microaggressions per megawatt. KBLA Talk 1580. Back to our conversation now with Phyllis Bennis, uh, the author, activist, and director of the New Internationalism Project at the Institute of Policy for Policy Studies, uh, an expert on all things foreign policy. Uh, we are talking in this hour about the ongoing war in Ukraine, the interminable war in Ukraine, in case you've just tuned in after news, traffic, and sports. Let me tell you where we are uh, at this moment. Uh, in a few days, we will be uh, uh, at the one-year anniversary. It was last February that these tanks, tanks, these Russian tanks, rolled into Ukraine. So we are approaching the one-year anniversary of this war in Ukraine, a war that Phyllis Bennett calls illegal and immoral, although not altogether unprovoked by the U.S. Uh, so we're approaching the one-year anniversary of this war. Nothing seems to abate. Uh, the specter of nuclear war has now been raised. We'll get to that later in this conversation. Uh, the price tag uh, for U.S. dollars, your tax dollars, sits at about $65 billion and climbing. 
You heard Phyllis say earlier, if you've been listening uh, to this program already, that there's another $50 billion being debated in Congress right now. So add 65 and 50, and you'll see where you are, uh, where we could be. But at the moment, we're sitting at $65 billion of your tax dollars. We've been linking what King called the triple threat facing this democracy, racism, poverty, and militarism, linking all three of those things together, particularly and especially poverty and militarism. When you're spending $65 billion over there, something here at home ain't being addressed or dealt with as well as it ought uh, or might be. Uh, and so we've been talking in this hour about what it means uh, for the U.S. to be supporting this war. Basically, the U.S. is in a proxy war, if I can put it that way. We're essentially in a proxy war with Russia. Uh, we know we have no boots on the ground, uh, but it's a proxy war uh, by any other definition uh, that we are now engaging, uh, waging with Russia. And we're talking about what it means to still be in this proxy war a year later again with the price tag rising significantly. Phyllis Bennett also told us moments ago uh, that the U.S. military um, uh, now eats up about 53% of the federal budget. Think about that. 53% of our federal budget is eaten up uh, by uh, uh, the military. Uh, and that is something that we need to wrestle with as well. Um, Phyllis, um, you mentioned Reverend Barber before News Traffic and Sports, a dear friend of yours, dear friend of mine, a guest, of, uh, a friend of the station on this program regularly. And so you're right that he has been sounding off about this link between poverty and militarism and challenging the president. Uh, I regard Reverend Barber as the greatest moral leader of our time, the greatest moral leader of this moment. Uh, is how I regard Reverend Barber. He just announced he's retiring from his church down in North Carolina and opening up an institute in, at Yale. He's headed to New Haven, right. uh, to Yale, to open an institute, as you well know, to focus on these things full-time. He's giving up his pastorate and focusing full-time on his poverty work and uh, uh, working witness uh, related to these issues uh, with a new institute at Yale. And uh, I was talking to him the other day. We'll have him on in a couple of days to talk about his new institute and what he intends to do in the days ahead but i was you and i were in, in, in conversation though about where are the chorus of voices challenging the president uh specifically on this increased spending for ukraine and making that link between poverty and militarism finish your thought we'll move forward from there well i think that what we're seeing is that there's a great deal of fear in official washington about being the one who says maybe we should be thinking about diplomacy we saw that last summer when there was a letter issued by the Progressive Caucus of Congress, 30 leading members of Congress signed on to a letter uh, that, was, uh, uh, that aimed to say there needs to be a diplomatic track alongside everything else in Ukraine. And just because of the tensions around it, it was, the letter ultimately was withdrawn. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those moments when you thought, boy, why is it that something like calling for diplomacy can be seen as politically so dangerous, right? It was, it was a terrible thing to see. And what we're, what we're seeing now is that there's a great deal of, I, I hate to use the word, but I think there's a certain kind of groupthink going on that says that if you're against this war, which we all should be, mm -hmm. that somehow it's not okay to talk about a ceasefire. You know, the, the, there's reasons that we need a ceasefire, starting with, the human cost, especially for Ukrainians. But there's also a global cost to this war. The, the global economy, a lot because of the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia, the stalls in, in shipping, higher prices for fuel, the result is the lack of food, hunger becoming a bigger problem than ever, and the threat of famine 
across the global south, particularly in parts of the Middle East and parts of South Asia. There's a huge environmental impact when instead of focusing on alternatives, alternative forms of energy, those alternatives are now being sidelined and instead new fossil fuel sources are being searched for around the world. So global warming is escalating. And then we have the problem of militarism and the military budgets around the world, especially in Europe, but also globally, following the U.S. example of of pouring money into war and preparation for war instead of money that could be used to build people's lives in all of these countries. And then we get to the question of the threat of nuclear escalation. And, you know, Tavis, it's so hard to talk about that issue. I don't actually believe that either the United States or Russia intends to launch a military attack, uh, sorry, a nuclear attack. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean it can't happen. Accidental actions in the context of wars like today, when you have the U.S. and Russia, the two most powerful nuclear weapon states in the world, together the U.S. and Russia control 90% of all the nuclear weapons in the world, enough to wipe out humanity across the planet a million times over. Not a million times, but many times Mm -hmm. over. You know, this is an incredibly dangerous moment. When the U.S. and Russia were backing different sides in the war in Syria five, six, seven years ago, they had a military-to-military hotline that they could use and did use to make sure that they didn't attack each other. Neither of them, I should note, neither the United States nor Russia cared about killing Syrians. Mm -hmm. But they didn't want to kill each other's troops because they knew that could lead to a massive escalation. Right now in Ukraine, where the U.S. and Russia are directly facing each other off with their own equipment, their, and their, you know, all of that is going on, they don't have that kind of a hotline. They don't have a way to say, oh my God, some young soldier just made a mistake. It's not an attack on you. Pull back, pull back. They don't have a way to do that. And in that circumstance, any escalation could mount and lead ultimately to a nuclear exchange. And that, it's a small possibility, but when you're talking about nuclear weapons, any possibility that is not zero yeah, is too much. simply too high. Yeah. Let, me, let, let me ask you whether or not you believe uh, your, your, your example now or your, um, you're teeing up the notion that an accident could happen, and accidents do, in fact, happen because we're human and we're not human and divine. We're just human, so accidents happen. We get that. Um, set that aside for a second. I'm wondering whether or not you think the notion of mutually assured destruction at this point in late modernity is enough to stave off nuclear war. No, I don't think it is. Wow. I don't think that's wow. what wow. lasted wow. Wow. before. Yeah. You know, the notion, it, it, the, 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 the way the world is dealing with nuclear weapons is incredibly dangerous. On the one hand, you now have, I think it's up to 90 countries that have signed on, and maybe 60 or so have ratified the new last year's convention prohibiting nuclear weapons across the board. It makes it illegal to have them, to build them, to trade them, before you even get to using them. All of that is illegal, straight up illegal. But none of the nine countries that have nuclear weapons that we know about, five official and four unofficial, 
None of those countries have signed on. None of those have, countries have any intention of signing on. And what we hear instead, for example, we hear on the Russian side, we've heard direct threats of possible nuclear weapons. On the U.S. side, we've heard threats in the form of actions. The U.S. has now designated a trillion dollars over 30 years to modernize and upgrade our nuclear arsenal. That's a direct threat. Mm. That's a direct threat. So both sides in Ukraine have made threats of nuclear weapons use. Again, I don't believe either government in Moscow or Washington is planning that or intends to do it. But wars have a way of controlling those who fight in them more than the fighters control the war. No, I receive that, but it's a scary thought um, and uh, a deeply troubling thought. Uh, to consider Phyllis's point of view that the notion of mutually assured destruction is not enough to hold off, to stave off nuclear war. I need to noodle on that and marinate on that for a second because that's, a, that's, a, that's hard to process. But I, I always love the honesty and transparency of her responses uh, in our dialogues. When we come forward and continue this dialogue with Phyllis Bennis, um, if members of Congress sort of get chin-checked or called on the carpet, pick your metaphor, for even raising the notion uh, of diplomacy to end this war in Ukraine. If that's how they get treated for even raising the notion of diplomacy as the answer, then how do we end this war in Ukraine? That will be one year old uh, in a few weeks from now in February, and where a price tag is now above $65 billion of U.S., that is to say your taxpayer money. How do you end it? We'll ask that question of Phyllis Bennis of the new, the new internationalism project that is at the Institute for Policy Studies when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where hate loses and love wins. So, Phyllis Bennis, if, uh, again, members of Congress um, sort of get spanked, as it were, uh, chin check, called on the carpet, pull your metaphor, for even raising the specter, raising the notion of diplomacy as the answer, uh, in Ukraine, um, I, I don't know what that means for how we ever end this thing. So you tell me. It means, Tavis, that we need movements. We need movements to change the political discourse, to challenge the mainstream media that is appropriately, I think, doing incredible coverage about the human cost of this war, but inappropriately answering it with demands for more militarism, demands on government officials. Why aren't you calling for more tanks to be sent? Why aren't you calling for warplanes? Why aren't you calling for a no-fly zone? Instead of saying, why aren't you calling for diplomacy? Mm-hmm. Why aren't you calling for a ceasefire? There are too many people being killed, too many Ukrainian civilians being killed. We need a ceasefire to stop it. We need to change the discourse in Washington so that it is no longer considered unacceptable to say that we need a ceasefire, that we need a uh, set of of new negotiations, that we need diplomacy. That should be our starting point for how we're going to end it. And it's up to us. Congress isn't going to lead. We have to lead. We have to make it necessary for members of Congress to say, this war has gone on long enough. We don't necessarily have to expect them to say, oh, I was wrong. It's fine. Whatever they want to say about where they were in the past, Mm -hmm. now they have got to say, 
We need diplomacy. We need a ceasefire. That's what we're that's what we're looking at. The U.S. can launch its own diplomacy with Russia, not about the terms of a ceasefire. Ultimately, Ukraine is going to have to do that for itself. But the U.S. needs to call for diplomacy. Its own diplomacy can, can start with a call for reopening U.S.-Russian bilateral talks aimed at strengthening the nuclear disarmament and arms control treaties that had been abandoned in recent years. They could start by saying they want to negotiate uh, clarity on the U.S. sanctions against Russia, saying when there is a ceasefire, those, cease, those sanctions will be lifted. They could announce that they're going to negotiate a halt in the construction of the new military base that's now being built in Poland just 100 miles from the Russian border. There's going to be strategic missiles there, right on the Russian border. It's just making everything worse. The U.S. could negotiate all of those things and call for negotiations to, to begin yeah. between Russia and Ukraine without interfering with the decision, the decision-making rights of Ukraine's own government. Yeah. You, you know all this stuff um, that you just laid out, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a thorough and comprehensive list that you just shared with us of the things that the U.S. Uh, could be and should be doing rather than just giving more money um, to Ukraine, things that we ought to be doing on the diplomatic front. You know this because you do this stuff every day, and you do it better than anybody I know, which I always love having you on this program. That list notwithstanding, it begs the obvious question, and this will be our exit question when we come forward in a moment with Phyllis Bennis. What agency do the American people have in forcing that list into reality, into existence, into uh, into action. What agency do everyday people have? Because again, I want to make these. I want to make this simple connection. This is our money. These. This is. This is your money. These sixty-five billion dollars that have now been spent or pledged to Ukraine. Another fifty billion being debated in Congress right now. This is your money. What agency, though, do everyday people have in advancing that list? Uh, of diplomatic options that Phyllis Bennis just laid out. We'll put that question to her in our final moments with her in a moment on KBLA Talk 1580. Courage is Courage contagious. Is contagious. We're KBLA Talk 1580. All right, many moments with Phyllis Bennis on KBLA Talk 1580. Um, she just teed up a, a pretty uh, impressive list of all the things that the U.S. government ought to be doing, should in fact be doing to advance notions of diplomacy as a way to end this war in Ukraine rather than continue to write checks as we've been doing for the last year. Um, the question for this is what agency everyday people have in forcing that list into, into existence? We have to struggle for it, Tavis. The first thing is education. People need to learn a little bit about the notion of diplomacy, why it's not something that we should be afraid of. This is how wars end. The question is how many people have to be killed before we get there. Mm. So that means changing the political discourse. People can go to their churches and ask that the, the church perhaps play Reverend Barber's Christmas Eve sermon about the need for diplomacy and a ceasefire in Ukraine and elsewhere around the world. We can read alternative views of why diplomacy is needed. Uh, your show places like Democracy Now!, that, that have voices that are calling for diplomacy, and then begin the process writing letters to the editor, calling radio talk shows, sending letters to members of Congress, meeting with members of Congress and their staff at home. Let them hear from you. Let the other, other govern, 
governing officials, whether it's statewide, city, city councils, all of them, should be bombarded, to use a military term, with ideas about the need for diplomacy. Mm-hmm. To say there's too many people dying and the way to stop it is going to require diplomacy. We need to start the diplomacy now. Yeah. Um, as we are on the eve of this one-year anniversary, uh, do you expect things to get worse before they get better, or are you looking at anything in the last 60 seconds here that gives you reason to believe that we're about to course-correct in uh, regard to this war? Unfortunately, Tavis, I'm not seeing evidence of a course-correction. I'm seeing more evidence in the opposite direction, but that's why it's so urgent that people in our organizations, in our, our faith houses, in all those places, in our schools, take responsibility for this war that is being waged in our name with our money and with our military equipment and, and, and weapons. That's coming from us. We have to do something different. We have to change this and shift from providing more guns, providing more weapons of war, to providing the tools of diplomacy. That's how this war will end. Always honored and humbled when she takes our phone call and agrees to come on this station to unpack for us um, these issues uh, vis-a-vis foreign policy. None better than Phyllis Bennett. She's author, activist, and director of the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. Uh, Phyllis, thank you for your insights. As always, we'll do it again somewhere down the road. Looking forward to it, Tavis. Thanks very much. Take care in the meantime. Hour three of Tavis Smiley after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580.